Romans chapter 2. So for those who haven't been here for a while, we're just going through this verse by verse, seeing what's going on. Uh, Paul's letter to the, the, uh, the region of Galatia. All right, so Galatians isn't just one church, it's a region with many churches there. Uh, Paul has made his case, defended his apostleship and his message of the gospel and who he received it from. Uh, this is all because Judaizers are in there. They're trying to add something to the gospel. They're trying to add to Jesus. And he's, you know, confronting them. He doesn't even give thanks to them at the beginning of his letter uh, in his salutation like he does in his other letters to churches or groups of people. And which is because he's like, oh, I'm amazed. I'm in awe at how fast you would just step away from what I delivered to you and that message was the gospel the gospel of, of christ and faith alone it's justification by faith faith alone christ alone grace alone all that alone stuff in the solifieds <laughs> in the solas right all this jesus plus nothing right that's what i've always i'm saying jesus plus nothing so paul's letter to this point then has been about these false teachers I said false teachers, Judaizers, all right, same. They have perverted the gospel because of this addition, right? They're wanting to add the Jewish law. And it doesn't matter if it was in the first century or today. Adding human works to the gospel is a perverted gospel. And then it's not even a gospel, all right? And they're trying to do this first and foremost by undermining his apostleship. Paul's response is, like I said, he defended these things. Uh, he, he was an apostle, right? He began with the fact that he didn't receive that from any man, including the others. And last week we saw how Paul took away any doubt about his apostleship because by showing how the other apostles, we, were, we ended last week, they accepted him. They extended to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, right? Now, Paul takes one more opportunity to prove his independence here from the Jerusalem apostles. Okay, because if anyone in Galatia should get the notion that after meeting in Jerusalem and, and with these people and that Paul had to function under their authority or their endorsement or their guidance from like Peter and James and John, then right here, this should dispel that notion immediately because not only is Paul not guided or have somebody over him like Peter, he's going to become Peter's guide because now he's going to rebuke him because Peter is being a hypocrite. Okay? So, verse 11 through 14, I'll read those. So when it says Cephas, that's Peter. Okay? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? 
in front of everybody. He rebukes them. All right. Take note, please, that there's several other instances in the Bible and instruction that we can go to somebody alone, one face-to-face. If they reject that, we can take a couple other people or we can do it publicly. We can address them. If I was totally wrong in a sermon, I would not be floored if any one of you, it would have to either be Olivia or Paul, it would probably do it, would stand up and say, no, that's not right. And you could do it during the service, or during the service or at the end when I ask for questions. Totally fine. That should be acceptable. That should be totally acceptable within the church. Today it's not because love all the time. But it is love to actually go up to somebody and approach them and say, what you've got going on and what you're teaching is not right. Do you want to change this? Let's change this. Let's look at the word. Let's get into this. The whole counsel of God. Let's break it down. Let's see what's going on. All right. So Paul, he's rebuking Peter. And it says in front of all of them. Right. So it's okay. It's okay to address somebody in their teaching or their beliefs. Okay, whether it's on a Facebook post or you hear it in a sermon or in a conversation, it's okay. Take them aside or if you have to, do it in front of a group of people. Won't go over that well. I've done it before. <laughs> I've done it before in a church service. Uh, <laughs> the room gets so quiet. <laughs> all right. So, but it's okay. And this isn't just an apostle thing here. All right. This is for all Christians to do this. You know the word. That way you can oppose the, the false when it comes across, okay? So there's a great contrast here. There was a unity last week, right? They extended the right hand of fellowship here. And then we have this, all right? As a matter of fact, this seems to be in such conflict with what is going on in this section that there was debate in the early church and they thought that maybe this was just all staged to illustrate the issues that were at stake. I don't believe that at all. So uh, I just throw that out. But it's interesting, interesting fact. So here we see Paul opposing, all right? And opposed here means forbidding. So this is a, a great act of boldness and courage that's on display. I believe Paul is empowered by the Holy Spirit because he knows what's going on, that he stood face to face with Peter and rebuked him in front of everyone, all right? Now, Peter, let's, Peter was the man who walked on water, right? We know this. He was personally called by Jesus. He saw Jesus uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. He came to the empty tomb, tomb on the morning of the resurrection. He was the first to preach uh, a sermon on Pentecost where, what, uh, all those were, uh, 3,000 were added to the church that day, right? Uh, the first, as far as recorded, to have the Holy Spirit work through him by healing the lame man at the gate of the temple. That's in Acts. He was also the man that, that confronted the religious leaders of Jerusalem as well in such a way as to rebuke them for not being true to their scriptures regarding who the Messiah would be and was. This is Peter. Paul has no problem whatsoever confronting him, does he? <laughs> right? He rebukes him to his face for what would be a denial of the true gospel of Christ. This is what Paul means when he says at the verse, the end of verse 11, because he stood condemned. What he means to say is that just as a criminal is found guilty of a crime, 
and has been proven to be wrong in a court of law, Peter has been found guilty of a wrong which can be proved. All right? What Peter was doing was to be condemned as being out of accord with the word of God. And there were to be consequences for that. And in this case, it was a rebuke that was to set the matter straight. So in the next verse, Paul explains what the problem is, right? He says certain men came from James. He was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, all right? So obviously Judaizers here, Antioch, they, they had a fully integrated body of believers. Uh, there was Christian Jews and Gentiles. Peter had followed the custom of eating with Gentiles, right? And this would have included the Lord's Supper. So his presence in participating at this table of fellowship with Gentile Christians was proof of the union and equality that Jesus has made between the Jews and Gentiles, right? Gentiles, let's just say, do we know? Gentiles is just really just this, uh, just a broad term for everybody who else is not a Jew, okay? Um, so that wall of hostility in Ephesians we see has been broken down. It's one new man now. There's neither Greek nor Jew nor Gentile, right? There's union and equality that should be established now between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And the problem was that that was not accepted by a lot of Jews, all right? The common Jew was brought up believing that the law spoke very clearly on the issue of what was considered clean and unclean, including food and people. The Gentiles were the worst of worst, like I've said. But there was a moral issue with when it came to the food. Every Jew knew that to de deviate from the dietary laws would make them feel, it made them feel guilty of being out of favor with God, right? But it went one step further because any Jew that knew all this would never consider eating a holy meal with what they considered to be an unholy Gentile, right? All right. So you go back and remember that even Peter had this issue. He had never considered eating unclean meals with Gentiles either. And Paul and I, we've had our discussions on whether Peter was racist or not. <laughs> right? He didn't want to go. He didn't want to take this. He did not want to give the gospel to the Gentiles. All right. So, you know, that's a big word. So it's, I just state that because I was talking about it earlier. But this this issue going on is recorded in Acts. We, we go back to Acts a lot. This timeline is all in here. In Acts 10, 9 through 16, there's a Roman centurion, right? It's Cornelius. He's given a message by an angel from God to, to call on Simon Peter to come to his house to share the gospel, right, with his family. And shortly after this, the Lord was giving Peter a vision on the rooftop. All right, so Acts 10, 9 through 16 says, And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet came down, coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. So there were probably bacon, 
Oh, I mean pig <laughs> and lobsters and crabs, okay? <laughs> All this stuff that they couldn't have. And a voice came to him and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. All right. And this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up in the sky. All right. So what's, what's going on here? Dietary laws are... Yeah. Dietary laws are gone. They're out of the window. The law on that, right? Also, a Gentile... <laughs> Gentiles are clean, right? They're not to be considered unholy anymore. They can receive the gospel. Everyone else outside of the Jewish <laughs> circle can receive the gospel. So take it to them, Peter. So not only now has there's all this unclean un food, right? Peter, and he's saying, no, God said, I've cleansed it. It's no longer unholy. Eat it, right? Not only is he get a buffet of all this food he's never had before, <laughs> but God's preparing him for his trip, right? That he would know that, that it's not what we eat, Okay, it's who we trust that makes us right with God. So it's an important turning point for Peter for the mission of the church as well within world history. God was saying, Peter, there's a new new a new era has come in redemptive history because of my son, Jesus. Right. The Messiah has come. This 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 sacrificial and ceremonial law stuff of the Mosaic law have done their preparatory work let them go. They were but a type and shadow. The fulfillment has come. I will show you something great at the house of Cornelius. All right. So after he goes back to Jerusalem, the news had spread. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, they were waiting to confront him about eating with those uncircumcised animals. Right. The men, the Gentiles. Peter stood up to the men, told them what happened and how God had moved upon the Gentiles in a way that no Jew could dismiss. And he now saw Jews and Gentiles as one in the church of Jesus. And he realized that he could eat whatever he liked. And this experience prepared him to go to Antioch to freely fellowship with all the brothers and sisters there within the body, right? But in the text here in Galatians, it said he used to eat. So this must be after, right? He used to eat with the Gentiles. The Greek indicates that his uh, eating was continuous and it became habitual. It was regular. It was just what you do, right? Then something happens to change Peter's habits. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. All right, so who are they, right? They're influencers, right? The Judaizers. They put a bunch of pressure on Peter. So because of the fear of these men, Peter quits. He withdraws from that table of fellowship with the Gentiles and begins to eat only what the Jewish law would have allowed him to eat. Now, James was a leader in the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And because he ministered among the Jews... Um, they're, they're what following after righteousness then meant giving no offense to the Jews, right? That meant he was, he was a close adherent to the customs of the Jews. So he, he would have been following some of this, but 
the one, the one thing made clear here in verse 12 is that Peter feared these people. I don't know why the fear. I mean, we can speculate on several things as far as the Bible goes, but it just says he feared them. So since he feared him, what he is doing is that he has compromised his convictions, even though he knew that was wrong. Right. His fear of men weakened his faith in God. And then worst of all, he becomes this bad example then that caused the others to follow his example. All of this caused him to start drawing back, separating himself from the Gentile believers. And this is a military term that suggests, suggests disengagement to find a safer ground, right? So Paul goes on to then say that his hypocrisy, hypocrisy spread to the others. It said, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was the one that had Paul and took him and said, look, he's good. Now Paul is joining in on this hypocrisy. Peter was being two-faced, okay? He's being a hypocrite. That led Barnabas astray. They were saying one thing with their actions, believing another thing in their hearts. They sought to avoid condemnation from the circumcision party. They feared this at the expense of their principles. They feared what man might do, and so they put up a front, right? They're compromising. So the, the hypocrisy of their actions was based on the fact that what they still believed, they had ceased to practice, so they had not deliberately departed from right doctrine. They, they deviated from the practice of it, right? So Peter, Barnabas, the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch, they knew that these Gentile believers were Christians. They knew that. Yet, because of the pressure from these certain men from James that acted, they acted like these people weren't Christians at all. And got to stay away. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like, like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Peter understood that Peter's, or Paul understood that Peter's hypocrisy was really a compromise of the gospel, right? Withdrawing from the Gentile believers under uh, these circumstances was to deny the truth that all believers are one in Jesus. It established two classes then, right? Two classes or two groups of citizens within the church and implied that one class of believers were superior to the other, right? And that totally contradicts the gospel, so Paul's taking drastic action. Now, let's pause. Does that happen today? <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning as I was going over this, you know. How many add to this and make two, two class classes of people in the church one superior than the other <clears throat> okay so there's some people there's some churches who say you absolutely have to be baptized or you're not saved they call this baptismal baptismal regeneration 
right? You're not actually created, made a new creation and born again until you're saved or baptized. So therefore, don't die until you get dunked. <laughs> don't do that. You're going to hell unless you get baptized. All right. They're adding. They're adding. Right. Then we have the Pentecostal distinctive. Right. You got saved. You've been indwelt, right, with the Holy Spirit. But now you need an infilling of the Holy Spirit. So now you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you, a lot of times with the uh, evidence of speaking in tongues. So until you're actually baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, you're not really saved. But once you do that, you're on par, man. Like, now you're better than the others, Right? And we've experienced people who didn't ever speak in tongues and they felt very burdened by that because they never felt equal with those who did. That's not a level playing field. That's making two citizens in the, in the body of Christ when we're all equal, right? Um, what else is there? There's a lot. Oh, so if you're not into gifts, you can go over to this camp over here that doesn't believe in the gifts today. And they just have their cessationist views that's a lot like the charismatic or evangelical or Pentecostal views, right? I, may, I should add that not everybody will say you have to have the evidence of speaking in tongues, but they do make a baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have that second word. So you go over here, and it's works-based because you're saved, now you need to be sanctified, right? There's that. There's, there's sanctification as well. Uh, very works-based. But it's a second work of grace in the believer. They're adding. Is there anywhere in the gospel, in the New Testament, that says there's these separate works? Olivia's like, <laughs> think of that Kermit the Frog meme. He's like, it's not in there, but that's none of my business. <laughs> Sipping the tea. There's nowhere in there. As a matter of fact, like you have to be saved takes the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit enters you to be saved, <laughs> to grant your faith, to regenerate you, all that. Baptism is just a symbol that you partake in. Sanctification, it says you're sanctified positionally, spiritually in Christ. You are sanctified, glorified, you're holy, you're blameless. But there is practical sanctification we've talked about before, like going through Colossians. But they teach it so much that they've made a whole new thing that's called entire sanctification that you really want to achieve. And people strive and labor in this. They gotta have it. They're down at the altar and they're praying and, and all that. And I'm not I'm not mocking them when I say these things. They literally like until that happens, then. And then you hear the people who claim to have been entirely sanctified and sin is no longer a problem for them. They will tell you, I am not tempted. I do not sin. I've been entirely sanctified. Okay. Show, show, me, the, show me the text on that one. All right. So because of that, it still happens all the time, right? And, and then if you take those things away, it's still like you need to do this. You got to do that. Now we get, you know, I was joking earlier, we're going to get you plugged in, get a small group, and then you start doing that, like, right? Got to do all these things. Do, do, do all the time. And it amounts 
to doo-doo. <laughs> it is. It's a bunch of rubbish. You're created for good works in Christ. Be a good mom. Be a good dad. Be a wife and a husband. Do these things. God looks at them and goes, wow. That's how I created humanity to do these things. Go to work. You don't have to have this God-sized dream. I know I go off on these things sometimes, but I figured I wouldn't maybe not start the other one. But all the time, people are just spinning their wheels, man. They're in a ditch, and the it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and they're clogged down, they're bogged down, they're burdened, and they feel like they amount to nothing because the sermons from the pulpits make their life sound like it's very mundane and no good. When, in fact, you're a saint, you've been made new, you are cleansed, you're, you're a child of God, you are set apart, you're sanctified. Everything that Christ has, he's imputed to you. And so being a stay-at-home mom is a good thing. It glorifies God, right? Going to work's a good thing. Being a good parent's a good thing. These are good works that you will be uh, patted, like job well done, Right? That's what you always say. Job well done. Those are all good things, but people today, they just want self-help sermons. <laughs> they want to be told to go out there for the kingdom and spread the fire like crazy, right? If you're not doing that, if, you're if your life doesn't look like a page straight out of the Bible, what's the point, Right? And then they're missing all the things I just said. That stuff's straight out of the Bible, <laughs> right? That's God's word. That's what he's, it says about you as a believer, all right? Anyway, that's my rant for the day. So Peter and these people have established that then, these two classes, right? You have the Jewish Christians. They're superior to the Gentiles. And that contradicts the gospel, like I said. So, so Peter contradicted it. He perverted it, the gospel. The gospel proclaimed that salvation for both Jews and Gentiles was by way of the cross of Christ with union of, with Christ. Faith alone, nothing else. Peter withdrawing from the Gentiles implied then that salvation required more, right, more from them, so their conclusion would be that we're lacking. Like I just said, how everybody is today in the evangelical complex industry. You always feel like you're lacking. You don't have to add anything. So Paul leads Peter back to his own deepest convictions by asking him a question. If you, a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter had already made it clear that his convictions permitted him to be free from all these Jewish regulations, right? But now his separation from that table, his withdrawing with the Gentile believers forced Gentiles to follow these Jewish customs. So while Peter, who as a Jew had the freedom, he had the freedom like a Gentile. His, his recent act of that separation from the Gentiles robbed them of their own freedom to live like who they were in Christ. You guys get that? 
right? He's robbing the Gentiles to live as, in their freedom as they would in Christ. So now they were being forced to live like Jews if they wanted to remain in the same church and retain their salvation in Christ like the Jewish Christians. Which you cannot retain your salvation, by the way. You're not doing that. That's why Jesus holds you and God holds you. Nothing can snatch you from their hands. There's nothing that you can do to merit any more favor from God. You have been saved. It was all on the obedience of Jesus, right? Staying in him is his faith in the Father and his obedience as well. So Peter was adding to the gospel. He was adding the works of keeping the Jewish law. And when you add anything to the gospel, right? You destroy it. It's done. It's not a gospel anymore. All right? So we need to remember that the freedom of all Gentile Christians and that the whole future of that mission here was at stake. That's why Paul's uh, doing this. All right? So what, what if Peter's separation had set a precedent for the future so that all Gentile Christians were required to become Jews? Right? Paul's not letting that happen. I don't think God would have let it happen either, but he's, he's using Paul. So if the, if the division uh, along ethnic you know, lines had been allowed, the church would never have been able to exhibit the new humanity unified by faith in Christ, which transcends ethnicity and social divisions in the world. Right? So obviously, Peter's response to this re rebuke was positive. We see this in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Peter stood to argue, and I get the timeline's iffy on there, but he, he does this. Peter stood to argue then the case for accepting Gentiles on the basis of salvation by faith alone. All right, so it's Acts 15, 7 through 11. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having clean, cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And that was his argument. And that's Paul's point. Why are you doing that? Why are you placing that on them? You can't even bear it, <laughs> right? And that's the whole point here in this, this section. So Peter or Paul will then go into the solution to this, which is justification by faith. And that's the next, next section. Yeah. <laughs> It'll take too long. <laughs> but that is the next section, the solution to the hypocrisy to the Judaizers, to what the Gentiles in the region of Galatian is going, that you are justified by your faith alone. That's it, all right? So we'll see that next week, 15 through 21.